Chapter Seven of One of My Sons by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven: The Elderly Gentleman by the Newell Post. This is surprising. Do you understand this, Miss Meredith? There is nothing written here. The sheet is perfectly blank. She turned, stared, and laughed convulsively. Blank, do you say? What a fuss about nothing! No words, no words at all. Let me see. I certainly expected you to find some final message in it. What a change of manner! The moment before she had confronted us, a silent, agonized woman. Now her words rattled forth with such feverish volubility we scarcely knew her. The coroner, not noticing, or purposefully blind to the relief she showed, handed her the slip without a word. The brothers had all drawn off and for the first time began to whisper among themselves. As for myself, I did not know what to do or think. My position, if anything, had changed for the worse. I seemed to have played some trick. I wanted to beg her pardon, and theirs, and seeing her finally let the paper fall to the floor with an incredulous shake of the head, I began to stammer out some words of explanation which sounded weak enough under the tension of suppressed excitement called forth in every breast by this unexpected incident. I feel, I am persuaded, you will not give me credit either for good sense or for the sincerity of my desire to be of service to you, I made out to say. I certainly thought from Mr. Gillespie's actions, above all from the expressions which accompanied them, that he had entrusted me with a communication of no little importance and that this communication was meant for Miss Meredith. To my chagrin, my plea went unheeded. She was too absorbed in hiding her own satisfaction at the turn affairs had taken, and her cousins in deciding to what extent their position had been improved by the discovery of a blank sheet of paper, where all had expected to find words, and very important words, too. Consequently, it fell to Dr. Bennett to answer me. No one can doubt your intentions, Mr. Oothway. Miss Meredith will be the first to acknowledge her indebtedness to you when she comes to herself. You have fulfilled your commission according to the dictates of your own conscience. That you have failed to effect all you hoped for is not your fault. As a lawyer, you will rate the matter at its worth, and as a man of heart, excuse the exaggerated effect it has to all appearance produced upon those about you. It was a palpable dismissal, and I took it for such, or would have if Miss Meredith, whose attention the word lawyer had seemingly caught, had not honoured me with a look which held me rooted to the spot. "'Wait!' she cried. "'I want to speak to that young man. Do not let him go yet.' And advancing, she stood before me in an attitude at once womanly and confiding. "'Come back, Hope!' I heard uttered in the peremptory tones of him they called Leighton. But though the spasm which passed over her face denoted what it cost her to disobey the voice of so near a relative, she stood her ground. "'I need a friend,' she said to me, "'someone who will stand by me and support me in a task I may find myself too weak to accomplish unaided. I cannot have recourse to my cousins. They are too closely connected with the sorrows brought upon us all by this event. Besides, I find it easier to depend on a stranger.' one who does not care for me as dr bennett does a lawyer too i may need a lawyer sir will you aid me with your counsels 
I should find it hard to come upon another man of such evident sincerity as yourself. Hope! Hope! Entreaty had now become command. Leighton even took a step towards her. She faltered, but managed to murmur. You will not go till I have seen you again. You will not. I will not, I rejoined, putting down the hat I had caught up. The next minute, she, as well as myself, perceived why she had been thus peremptorily called back. The group around the newel post had changed. A large, elderly man, with a world of experience in his time-worn but kindly visage, was standing in the place occupied by the coroner a moment before. He was bowing in the direction of Miss Meredith, and he held some half-dozen letters in his hand. As her eyes fell upon these letters, he regarded her with an encouraging smile, and said, "'I am Detective Grice, Miss. I ask pardon for disturbing you, and I don't want you to lay too much stress upon my presence here, or upon the few questions I have to put on behalf of the coroner, who has just been called to the telephone. A few explanations are all I want, and some of these you are in a position to give me. You have been in the habit of using the typewriter for your uncle, I am told.' yes sir did you use it for the writing of these five letters found upon his desk yes sir to-night yes sir at what hour between dinner-time and half-past eight this was the first time she had acknowledged having seen her uncle after dinner so you were with him until half-past eight yes or thereabouts and left him in the enjoyment of his usual health to all appearance yes before or after your cousin Leighton came into the study? Before. Why did you leave? Was Mr. Gillespie through with his work for the night? I don't know. I don't think so, but I was tired, and he begged me to go upstairs. In his usual manner? Yes. Not like a man anxious to have you go? No. And when did the child come down? Later. Not immediately? no a quarter of an hour or so later hm the child was with him then a quarter of an hour before his death i suppose so i do not know the detective waited a moment then his hand closed over the letters miss it is very important to know whether mr gillespie anticipated death this correspondence you know it a letter to simpson and beale's attorneys dubuque iowa another to howard mccartney st augustine florida this to the president of the santa fe railroad and this to clark beals and company nassau street city all business letters i presume entirely so sir and none of them i judge such as a man could write who expected to close all accounts with the world in less than an hour none how laconic she was for a girl scarcely out of her teens for this correspondence, then, as you know it, he showed no intention of suicide? On the contrary, in one of those letters, the one to Clark Beals and Company, I think, he made an appointment for tomorrow. My uncle was very exact in business matters. He would never have made this appointment if he had not hoped to keep it. Are you two in league? The angry voice of George broke in. Are you trying to make out that father died from violence? In league? Did she say it, or only look it? I felt my heart swell at her piteous, her agonized expression. 
Mr. Grice, as he called himself, may have seen it, but he appeared to be looking at the slip of paper he now drew from his pocket, and which we all recognized as that which she had shortly before let drop. "'You see this,' he said. "'It looks like a piece of perfectly blank paper.' "'And it is,' she declared. "'Why he should send it to me, I do not know.' It was given me in an envelope by the gentleman at the door, who says he got it from my uncle before he died. Everyone here knows that. Very good. Now let me ask from what sheet your uncle tore this scrap of paper. You recognize it as paper you have seen before? Oh, yes, it is part of what is used in the typewriter. At least I suppose it to be. It looks like it. Sweetwater, bring me the typewriter. Sweetwater was the young man who had before shown himself in attendance on the coroner. "'Oh, what does this mean?' asked Hope, shrinking back. An oath answered her. George had reached the end of his patience. The placidity of the old man remained undisturbed. Meanwhile, the young detective called Sweetwater had returned with the typewriter in his arms. Setting it down on the library table, towards which they all immediately moved, he composedly strolled my way. We were now grouped as follows. The family and some others in the library, Sweetwater and myself at the front door. Naturally, from the point I have just indicated, I could not look into the library. But my hearing being good, and that of the young detective still better, we both managed to get the drift of what was being said, though we could not note the speakers. I had seen a slip of paper protruding from the machine when it was carried past me and it was to this piece of paper Mr. Grice first called Miss Meredith's attention. "'There's an unfinished letter here, as you see. Did you have a hand in writing it?' She did not answer very promptly, but when she did, it was with a no, which was startlingly abrupt. "'Ah, then there's someone else in the house who uses the typewriter.' "'Mr. Gillespie. He often used it when he was in a hurry, and I not by.' "'Mr. Gillespie.' Do you think it was he who wrote these lines? I do. There was no one else to do it. Was my imagination too active, or had her voice a choked sound which spoke of some latent emotion she strove to conceal? Then, suavely responded the detective, we need no other proof of Mr. Gillespie's condition up to the time he worked off this last line. I doubt if you ever made a better copy yourself, Miss Meredith, but why is it torn across in this manner? Half of the sheet is missing, and some portion at least of the letter is gone. A sudden gasp, which could have come from no other lips than hers, was followed by certain short exclamations from the others, indicative of interest, if not surprise. Shall I take it out, or will one of you read it as it lies here? I prefer one of you to read it. We heard a few stammering sentences uttered by George or Alfred, then Leighton's voice broke in with a calm remark. It is about some shares lately purchased in Denver. If you think it necessary to hear what my father had to say concerning them, then this is a facsimile of what he wrote a half hour or so before he died. New York, New York, October seventeenth, eighteen ninety nine, James C. Taylor, Esquire, eighteen State Street, Boston, Massachusetts. Dear Sir, in regard to the financing of the ten million dollars mentioned in our conversation on the twelfth instant, it is of the utmost importance that I am placed as soon as possible in full possession of the facts regarding the proper— The rest is torn off, as you say. 
Do you consider this letter important? Not at all, except as showing the sound condition of your father's mind immediately prior to his collapse at ten o'clock. It is not the letter itself which should engage your attention, but the fact that this portion of it which has been wrenched off cannot be found. I know, he went on, before a rejoinder could be made by anyone in the startled group about him, that a strip seemingly of this same paper was received by Miss Meredith in an envelope a few minutes ago. Indeed, I have it here, but though it was evidently stripped from this same sheet, from the bottom part of it, as you can see from its one straight edge, it does not fit the portion left in the machine. Some two inches or so of the sheet is lacking. Now, where are these two inches? Not in the room from which we brought the typewriter, nor yet on Mr. Gillespie's person, for we have looked. Silence. No one seems to answer, breathed a voice in my ear. Had this shrewd and seemingly able detective expected a reply? I had not. Silence had too often followed inquiry in this house. It is a loss open to explanation, mildly resumed the aged detective. It is also one which the police deems important. We shall have to search for that connecting slip of paper, unless, as I sincerely hope, someone here present can produce it. Search! A commanding voice broke in that of Leighton. We know nothing about it. It is a pity, rejoined the old man, with a mildness unusual in one of his class. Such a measure should not be necessary. Someone here ought to be able to direct us where to find this missing portion of a letter interrupted by so stern a fact as the writer's death. Still no answer. Had there been a fire in the room, but there was no fire, or had Mr. Gillespie left the room, speak out the stern tones again enjoined you think some of us took it i do not say so was the conciliatory reply but this scrap must be found its remarkable disappearance shows that it has more or less bearing on the mystery of your father's death then we must entreat you to use your power and find it if you can it was still leighton who was speaking george alfred let us accept the situation with good grace. We will gain nothing by antagonizing the police. Two muffled oaths answered him. Their natures were more passionate than his, or possibly less under control. But they offered no objections, and the next minute the old detective appeared in the hall. One look passed between him and the young man loitering at my side. Then the latter turned to me. This is to be my task, he whispered. I don't know the house at all. I hear that you have been up. From whom could he have heard this? From Dr. Bennett? It was possible. Such persons warmed themselves into the confidence of warier persons than this amiable old physician. I have passed through the halls, I admitted, none too encouragingly, but I don't see how that can help you. It's a four-story building, I suppose. All the houses along here are. Yes, it's a four-story house. He rubbed one hand awkwardly against the other. Indeed, his whole manner was awkward. Then he walked slowly down the hall. When he reached the library door, he stopped and looked in, with a shy and deprecating air. Suddenly he began to back away. Someone was coming out. It was Miss Meredith. When she was in full sight, and he brought to a standstill by the wall against which he had retreated, he spoke, but not to her though his eyes were fixed upon her in a sort of blank stare she may have attributed to the power of her beauty, 
but which I felt was of a character to make her careful. Four stories, he muttered, parlor floor, first bedroom floor, second bedroom floor, and the attic. Where shall I begin? Ha! I think I know. He smiled and passed quickly down the hall. She had given an involuntary pressure to her hands when he mentioned the word attic. I thought of the position in which I had found her there, of the doubts expressed by the doctor as to how she could have received an intimation of her uncle's death before an alarm had been raised or her cousins fully aroused, and felt forced to acknowledge that the police were justified in their action, great as was the spell cast over me by her loveliness. That, justified or not, they meant to do their work, I soon saw. With a steady eye the coroner held us all to our places, while the young detective disappeared above, followed only by Leighton, who had asked the privilege of accompanying him for fear of some alarm being given to his little child who was upstairs alone. From the way Miss Meredith's eyes followed them, I knew there was something to be feared from this quest which she alone had the power of measuring. What was I to think of this young girl who chose to be reticent on a subject involving questions of life and death? I would not probe my doubts too closely. I stilled myself against her look, resolving to be the lawyer, her lawyer, if required, but nothing more, at least till these shadows were cleared up. Her two cousins remained in the library, to which Mr. Grice had returned after making the signal to his man Sweetwater. We were all under great restraint, with the exception of the doctor, who was chatting confidentially with the coroner. What he said I could in a measure gather from the expression of Miss Meredith's face, who was nearer him than I. That it served to intensify, rather than relieve the situation, was apparent from the gravity with which the coroner listened. Later some stray words reached me. Had the greatest dread of poison. This I distinctly heard. Never took any medicine without asking. I could not catch the rest. Tell him symptoms. All the poisons, like a child. He never poisoned himself. This last rung in my ears with persistent iteration. It rang so loud I thought everyone on that floor must have heard it, but I saw no change in Alfred's restless figure hovering on the threshold of the library door a few feet behind Miss Meredith while George, conversing feverishly with Mr. Grice, raised his voice rather than dropped it as these fatal words fell from the lips of one who certainly had the best of reasons for believing himself in the confidence of his patient. Miss Meredith, who was listening to something besides this conversation, fateful as it was, was meanwhile schooling herself for Sweetwater's return. I could discern this by the change that passed over her face just when his steps began to be heard and was conscious of quite a personal shock when I saw her hand fall involuntarily on her bosom, as if the thing he sought was there and not in the rooms above. Cursing myself for the infatuation which would not let my eyes leave her face, I turned with sudden impulse into the reception room opening on my right, but I speedily stepped back again. Miss Meredith, who seemed to have gained some confidence by my presence, had feebly uttered my name. It seemed that the child had been heard to cry above, and that the coroner had refused to let her go up. I made my way to her side, and despite Alfred's scowls, entered into conversation with her, urging her to be calm and wait patiently for the detective's return. The child has its father, I suggested. 
but this did not seem to afford her much comfort. She wrung her hands in her anxiety, and showed no relief, till her cousin, followed by the watchful detective, was again seen on the stairs. Then she took my arm. She needed it, for life and death were in the gaze she fixed upon the latter. And he, well, I had never seen the man before that night. Yet I felt as certain from the way his feet fell on the stairs, he so slowly descended, that he had been successful in his search, and that the piece of paper which rustled so gently in his hand was the one Mr. Grice had declared to be of such importance, and which she, but what man can give a complete thought suggestive of distrust, while the hand of its lovely object presses warmly on his arm, and the eyes whose glance he both fears and loves rests upon his in a confidence which in itself is a rebuke. I gave up speculation, and devoted myself to sustaining Miss Meredith in her present ordeal. As Sweetwater reached the last step, she murmured these words, I tried, but fate has rebuked me. Now I see my duty. Her eyes had not followed Leighton's figure as he joined his brothers in the library, but mine did, and it did not make my heart any lighter to see from the glance he tossed her on entering that he was prepared for some event, serious enough to warrant all this emotion. "'You have found what you have sought,' she cried, intercepting the young detective in her anxiety to end the suspense it took all her strength to sustain. His smile was dubious, but it was a smile. Meantime, the paper he held had found its way into the coroner's hands. "'Call Grice!' shouted out that functionary, with a doubtful look at the slip in his hand. "'I shall need his experience in deciphering this.' The detective was at his side in an instant, and together they bent over the scrap. The suspense was great, and the moment well-nigh intolerable. Then we saw the detective's fingers rest on a certain portion of the paper they were mutually consulting, and remained there. The coroner read the words thus indicated, and his eyes showed both strong and sudden feeling. "'Ah!' he ejaculated. "'What do you make out of that?' The detective uttered a few low words, and taking the piece which had been in the envelope, he fitted it to the one held by the coroner. We could all see that they were part of the same sheet. "'I should like to see if it also fits the portion that was left in the typewriter.' suggested the other, ignoring the anxious looks bent upon him from every side. Passing by us all, he laid the three pieces together on the library table with a glance at the young Gillespie's, which was not without its element of compassion. "'Let us see it. What's on it?' urged Alfred. "'Why, this is worse than father's death.' "'If Miss Meredith will tell us how this central portion came to be on the attic floor, I will presently oblige you.' rejoined the coroner. She, who of all present showed no interest in the completed sheet, answered instantly, and without any further attempt at subterfuge or denial. I carried it there. I had come upon my uncle lying dead in his study, and thinking, fearing, that he had been struck while at the typewriter, I flew to the ladder, and, lifting up the carriage, consulted the letter attached to it for some indication of this, and saw— "'George, Leighton, Alfred,' she vehemently cried, facing them with a look before which each proud and spirited head sank in return. "'I do not know upon which of you three souls the weight of this crime rests, but one of you, one, I say, 
lies under the ban of your father's denunciation. Read. And her trembling finger crossed that of the detective, and fell upon a line terminating the half-finished letter which they had already partially read. This was the appearance of that letter as now presented. New York, New York, October 17, 1899. James C. Taylor, Esquire, 18 State Street. Boston, Massachusetts. Dear Sir, In regard to the financing of the ten million dollars mentioned in our conversation on the twelfth instant, it is of the utmost importance that I am placed as soon as possible in full possession of the important facts regarding the property covered by these bonds. First, the actual cost per mile, and if such cost covers the necessary equipment for same, both for freight and passenger service, also, if these bonds are the first lien, one of my sons, he, those last words were written after he felt himself sinking under the poison, rang out in instinctive emphasis from her lips. Contradict me, George, contradict me, Leighton, or you, Alfred, if you can. It would give me new life. It would restore me. She was sinking, fainting, almost at the point of death herself, but not a voice was lifted not a hand raised. This suggestion of crime had robbed them, one and all, of breath, almost of life. End of chapter 7